Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're bringing you a show we like to do a couple times a year. We call it Wild Cards, and basically what we're doing is casting aside our usual thematic approach and bringing you stories that are all over the map. In just a bit, we'll hear from Martin DeCaro, who brings us the latest on this week's battle over Metro's new Silver Line in Northern Virginia. Jessica Gould will tell the story of a luminary in Washington's music scene who's about to put down his baton after 47 years of choral performances. And Sabri Benashore will invite us to dive into the watery depths of our oceans, which are losing coral at what scientists say is an alarming rate. But we'll start off in northwest Washington, where it's lunchtime at a bustling hot spot in Adams Morgan. What can I get you? I'm going to do a small on white bread and a small drink. Amsterdam falafel shop. Small white, small soda, 672. As you can hear, the crowded cafe is buzzing and humming inside. But outside on 18th Street, it's buzzing and humming too. Not to mention rattling, flattering, and in some cases, some business have, businesses have complained that they <laughs> slam, slamming. I hate it when they drop that. <laughs> what is that thing? I don't know, but I think they just dropped it by accident. They are the construction crews working on the Adams Morgan Streetscape project. And this woman has been living with that project day and night. Her name is Ariane Bennett. And my husband Scott and I own the Amsterdam Falafel Shop here in Adams Morgan. The Streetscape project started and began moving up 18th Street in February of last year. The District Department of Transportation expects the project to wrap up by month's end. And when it does, we'll see a full makeover of 18th Street between Florida Avenue and Columbia Road. So we're talking everything from smoother asphalt to improved gas and water service to 71 new bike racks and 59 new trees. Oh, and let's not forget one of Ariane Bennett's favorites. Amazing wide sidewalks. What was your sidewalk like before in front of the falafel shop? Oh, I had one of the smallest sidewalk spaces on the block. At the time, I think we had two and a half feet between our front step and our tree. And so right now there's like 13 feet in front of us. And so there's no bottleneck. You can have strollers get through. You can have wheelchairs get through. But Bennett says those wider sidewalks and the other improvements did come at a price, thanks to the jumble of construction equipment, traffic cones, and jersey barriers that have been scattered about the 18th Street corridor. Did you feel like you lost any sales, income, customers because of all of this? Absolutely. We have definitely had months where we were down $15,000, $25,000. And she's not alone. In fact, nine businesses on 18th Street wound up applying for interest-free loans through the district's new Streetscape Loan Relief Fund. I think it's great we have one. We've helped a couple of people with their application, and, and we're just grateful because that has not been available in the past to anybody. Um, I think everybody would have hoped that we could have gotten a grant or you know, a complete freebie in some way to help us compensate. But to have anything is a godsend because many neighborhoods have gone through this and had nothing available to them to borrow from to make it through the hard time. One of the 18th Street businesses that applied to the fund is Crooked Beat Records. Okay, 4873. A store opened by D.C. native Bill Daly in 2004. Crooked Beat is on the southern end of the 18th Street Strip, so Daly says he bore the brunt of the Streetscape Project's earliest days. We had like a bulldozer in front of our shop for, what was it, for about eight months yeah. from last summer, and they didn't have as many construction guys as, as they do now. So in terms of revenue at Crooked Beat? As soon as the construction got really heavy, it, it dropped starting last May. June it dropped even more, July it dropped, and then August it dropped, and then yeah, September was the worst. September it got to about 48% below what was normal. 
March and April, it started coming back to the normal levels, and it's construction's further up the street now, so I think that's made a huge difference. We knew this would be a massive trip to the dentist. I know it's been a great imposition on the businesses and our customers and our residents, but we're almost done. D.C. Council member Jim Graham represents Ward 1 and authored the Streetscape Loan Relief Fund. It's been, I think, about $900,000 in monies that have gone out. I favored, and my original proposal would have provided for grants, but a majority of the council and the mayor did not want to do that, and so we have what we have. What we also have, Graham acknowledges, is, well, a delay, thanks to unexpected conflicts with electrical utilities. Here's Victor Agu, the project manager over at DDOT. The district issued what we call the NTP, Notice to Proceed to the Contractor, on uh, February 22nd, 2011. It was supposed to run about 448 calendar days. And if you do the math, that makes for a completion date of? The 15th of May. So clearly things are a little off time-wise, but money-wise, Agu says, the project is pretty much on track. Initial budget was about $9 million dollars. But after the bids were opened, we were able to get down the cost to about $6.5 million. Agu says those utility issues raised that figure by about two or 300000 Which is not much, which is still below the original projection of uh, $9 million. But the cost to the city is, of course, only one way to measure the project. Kristen Barden is executive director of the Adams Morgan Partnership Business Improvement District. And that's bid for short? Yeah, Adams Morgan bid. And she says she knows the project has been tough for many businesses on 18th. But she adds if you look at other streetscape projects in northwest D.C., like 14th Street's makeover in Columbia Heights or P Street's big transformation, things could have been a whole lot worse. The businesses expressed a lot of reservations before the construction project started um, because they, they had heard the horror stories of 14th Street and they'd heard the horror stories about P Street. And the P Street streetscape project actually did result in three or four businesses going under. And so, you know, for all the criticism of the streetscape construction, um, we've been very fortunate that we didn't lose any businesses in Adams Morgan. Barden owes this silver lining in part to all the advanced planning on the Adams Morgan project. She says businesses had been in the loop about what was to come for years. And back outside Amsterdam Falafel Shop, owner Ariane Bennett says, yes, that advance notice was a big help. All the same, though, she's eager to see the streetscaping done, and not just because it'll leave the neighborhood so beautiful. But since we live over our business, it'll be nice not to wake up at 6.30 every morning. <laughs> to the sound of like... Ka-chunk, 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 beep, beep, beep. Ka-chunk, 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 beep, beep, beep. Instead, she hopes she'll hear a different sound, the chatting and laughing of visitors, old and new, to the neighborhood. That, she says, will be music to her ears. For more on the Adams Morgan Streetscape Project, including a gallery of photographs from every month of the reconstruction, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
We turn now from roads to rails. We've been following the back-and-forth debate over Metro's Silver Line. That's the one that will zoom riders out to Dulles Airport and beyond into uh, Loudoun County. The next phase of this massive rail project is supposed to start next year. But squabbles over funding and union labor have left everything up in the air. And that's the subject of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. The Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, or MWA, made a key decision this week to move forward on phase two of the Silver Line. But Loudoun County is still on the fence. And transportation reporter Martin DeCaro is here to explain all the details. Hi, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. Okay, so Martin, MWA voted on a pretty contentious issue on Wednesday. What what happened? MWA killed the PLA. Okay, and remind us what a PLA is. Right, so a PLA is a project labor agreement. It's a piece of paper that addresses working conditions. And as we've reported, contractors would have received a significant bonus in the bidding process for choosing to enter into a PLA with union construction workers. But by an 11-to-1 vote, the MWA board bowed to political pressure here, and they dropped this pro-labor preference from the plan for Phase 2 of the Silver Line. And no doubt there was a lot of, you know, politicking on this issue. Yeah, the politics were that the McDonald administration and Republicans in the Virginia General Assembly opposed the PLA. Virginia is a right-to-work state, and most of its workers are non-union. So Virginia would have withdrawn its $150 million in funding. Loudoun County would have backed out of its $270 million commitment if MWA stuck with the PLA preference. MWA Board Chairman Michael Curto says he recognized this reality before the vote. I am going to vote in favor of removing the PLA incentive, I'm going to do so without uh, asking for any conditions. I think it's important that we send a signal to Loudoun County that we really wish to encourage their participation. It's critical to the to the success of the project. Okay, so does that end the dispute then? Well, Virginia's Transportation Secretary Sean Connaughton tells us Virginia is in, but Loudoun County is another matter. Why is that? All nine members of the Loudoun Board of Supervisors are Republicans. They all oppose the PLA, but they're divided over how their county should fund the project. Supervisors from eastern districts where the rail line would be built have different ideas than representatives from other parts of the county where residents will rarely use the Silver Line. And it's, it's just a big commitment anyway. For instance, the future Dulles Airport stop has an operating subsidy associated with it that Loudoun County is going to have to pay about 5 to $7 million per year even though Loudoun residents are not expected to heavily use that stop. So was all the controversy even necessary then? MWA board member Dennis Martyr was a big supporter of the PLA. He's a labor union official. But in the end, even he voted against it because, in his words, the contractor that eventually submits the winning bid is likely to enter into a PLA on its own anyway, as was the case for Dulles Rail Phase 1. So I asked him, then why did MWA make a big deal over the union labor anyway? It was only important because Phase 1 has proven to be very successful, saving the project money. And as fiduciaries of the project, that's, that's our goal. We have to save the project money so the tolls remain low. If we do something that's not going to keep tolls low, we're not doing a service to the public and those people that drive the toll road every day. Okay, so speaking of people who drive the toll road every day, how are they affected by all this? Well, drivers on the Dulles toll road may not be very happy. For the next two years, tolls would have risen dramatically had Virginia pulled out of Phase 2. But over the long term, tolls are still a real concern. The Reston Citizens Association, which represents 58,000 residents in Fairfax County, says a regular commuter who now pays less than $1,000 a year in tolls 
will see that cost rise to more than 8,000 per year in 2048, or more than 3,000 per year by 2028 in today's dollars. In other words, tolls are going up a lot. The association says three-quarters of the cost of Phase 2 of the rail line's construction will be borne by the 100,000 or so users of the Dulles Toll Road. Well, Martin, thank you so much for this update on the battle over the Silver Line. You're welcome, Rebecca. Martin DeCaro is WAMU's transportation reporter. Do you have an opinion about the pros and cons of the Silver Line project? Send a note to metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is WAMU Metro. After the break, a legendary conductor prepares to lift his baton and perform his swan song. We're all a community of music lovers here in service to the same goal and have been for decades, and hopefully it will go on for decades. Plus, a college student body president goes through a life-changing transition. My dad said a few months ago, I have to be honest, I don't feel like I'm losing a son. I feel like I'm gaining a daughter. That and more coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we are dedicating our show to what we're calling wild cards. In other words, we're taking a break from our usual weekly theme and bringing you stories that are pretty much all over the place. In just a few minutes, we're going to go inside DC's new subsidized housing, which is worlds away from the public housing projects of the past. We're also going to meet an American University student who recently made the decision to transition from living as a man named Tim to living as a woman named Sarah. But first, we're going to talk about the environment, specifically about coral reefs. These reefs take up less than 1% of the surface area of the ocean, but 25% of all living things in the ocean call coral reefs home. Thing is, corals aren't doing too well these days, and a recent scare at the National Aquarium in Baltimore showed just how fragile these organisms really are. Environment reporter Sabri Benashur brings us the story. At the National Aquarium in Baltimore, children ooh and ah at the colorful fish and coral waving and squirming around in the Pacific Coral Reef Tank in front of them. A foot away, a fleshy-colored Brent Whitaker looks on. He's senior director for biological programs at the National Aquarium. You, you have all shapes and colors when it comes to corals, and actually uh, the, the color is imparted by something called zooxanthellae, which is a symbiotic algae that lives within the coral polyp. And the algae provides the coral with energy that it needs to stay alive, while the coral provides the algae with protection and the basic nutrients it needs. Now, one day, Whitaker came up to the tank, and all the color was gone. Well, think about putting your blue jeans in the laundry and putting too much bleach. Well, they come out white. That's what happens to these corals. All these beautiful colors of these corals that you're looking at, you would come up here, and now what you would see is a field of white. 
And that's because, again, those algae, the color of those corals have left. Turns out a construction crew doing renovation work was to blame. And what we come find was that the lights were being left on all night long. A rise in temperature of just one degree Celsius can mess up the relationship between corals and the algae that live in them. Those algae leave, and if that lasts too long... They basically starve to death without them. With the corals go the fish, the eels, the shrimp, all the things that live on reefs. What Whitaker saw in his tank is playing out over and over again in the oceans. Mary Hagerdorn is with the Smithsonian. Globally, the numbers of corals all over the world have reduced substantially. Um, you know, everyone has a different number, but it's going down, it's not going up, and, or stabilizing. So if you look at the Caribbean, in many places, the reef-building coral has stopped functioning as an ecosystem. Some of those populations aren't reproducing every year. Hagerdorn has already started freezing coral cells to store in cryogenic seed banks. Scientists predict that in the central Pacific, the reefs are basically going to fry over the next century. This whole area, which includes some of the most remote and pristine coral reefs in the world, is predicted to warm by three degrees or more by the end of the century. Now, that is, uh, that is a huge rate of warming, much more than we know corals can actually survive. Anne Cohen is with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. She and colleague Chris Karnowskis were worried about this warming. Eighteen different models predict it. They were looking at satellite photos of the Pacific and saw some funny little dots. When you really zoom in with satellites, you see a relatively cold patch of water in an otherwise warm part of the ocean, suddenly, um, kind of out of nowhere, there's a, an enhancement of the productivity. What they found was that a few islands, just a handful, the Gilberts, the Gilbert Islands, which is part of the nation of Kiribati, at just the right spot near the equator, were cooler and livelier than their neighbors. Turns out there's an ocean-long, deep-water cooling current full of nutrients that's fueling these islands. When the cold nutrient-rich undercurrent passes through the island chain, uh, some of the water is forced up to the surface, which is just like uh, air rushing over a mountain, which can make interesting cloud formations. They did some calculations with supercomputers and found that as the climate changes, that current will strengthen. It'll be like an air conditioning unit, slowing the rate of warming by about seven-tenths of a degree Celsius. While that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, a lot... Um, and, and this natural mitigating effect that, that our study has identified may not spare the corals the, the perhaps inevitable warming expect for the region as a whole, that the rate of warming will be slower in these key pockets of coral life may offer them a better chance in the long run for adaptation and survival. As Cohen puts it, It's not looking good for anybody, but it's looking marginally better for a small subset of islands that are geographically well-placed. She says the Gilbert Islands should get special protection, so the corals there at least have a chance. George Stanley is a paleobiologist at the University of Montana. He says corals have been around for hundreds of millions of years, and they might survive climate change, too. But recovery of ecosystems take as long as 3 to 10 million years, depending on the the severity of the mass extinction and the causes. And humans don't have that long to wait. I'm Sabri Beneshore.
Sarah McBride is a student at American University. She recently served as president of the student government. Lately, there have been a few changes in the Delaware native's appearance and in her life. Just a few months ago, she was wearing a suit and tie. You see, although she finished her term as student body president as Sarah, she began it as Tim. Lauren Landau caught up with Sarah earlier this week and brings us her story. My name is Sarah McBride. I'm a 21-year-old rising senior at American University. Over the last year, I was AU's student body president, and on my last day in office, I came out to the student body through an editorial in my school newspaper as transgender. I've known that I'm a girl as long as I can remember. Three, four, five years old, I remember thinking in my head, I know I'm a girl. When I was seven or eight, I was watching a sitcom with my mother, and there was a guest character who was trans. And I remember asking my mom what that meant, and she explained it to me, and my heart dropped. And at the same time, I developed my interest in politics. The idea of being an elected official and being trans seemed mutually exclusive. So I chose the path that I thought wouldn't disappoint people. I chose a path that, on some level, I thought would be easier. And I continued to present as a straight man. I externalized everything. I thought that if I could solve other people's problems, if I could make the world a little fairer for them, that it would make it worthwhile for me to be a boy. As student body president, we worked really effectively in progressing the LGBT agenda on campus. It was incredibly fulfilling professionally and personally, but if anything, it only highlighted my own internal struggles more. It did, though, show me that if the campus community could rally behind a trans student they don't know in supporting gender-neutral housing, then I would be all right if I came out. The moment when I said, all right, I can't take this anymore, I need to tell people, was on Christmas morning. I had recently just come to terms with everything, and I told myself, I'm going to tell my parents after Christmas. And I went downstairs on Christmas morning, and the first present I opened was a button-up shirt and a tie. The button-up shirt and the tie were such a stark contrast between where I was and where I knew I needed to be. The stress from that and the symbol that it presented right in front of me was too much for me to keep inside. And so within two hours of getting that present, I had told my mom that I'm a woman. When I told my parents, I would say that they were shocked and surprised, and there were definitely tears. I think a common reaction for parents of trans children is a feeling of loss, the loss of your expectations for this child, the loss of the security of feeling like you knew everything about your child before, and on some level it feels like a death. And a lot of times those parents go through a mourning period. My mom asked me if I wanted her to remove the pictures from the house, and I said, there's no need for you to do that. The first 21 years of my life don't suddenly evaporate, and the memories are important enough to me and I think the people around me that I'm not willing to just throw them in the trash can. My dad said a few months ago, I have to be honest, I don't feel like I'm losing a son. I feel like I'm gaining a daughter. That reaction is a blessing and unfortunately all too uncommon. For far too many trans youth, coming out means getting kicked out of their house. The last month has certainly been quite a transition. 
on the one hand, I had to get an entirely new wardrobe, so that took some time, which was fun, but certainly expensive. My ex-girlfriend is the one who helped me put on my makeup for the first time. I am at a state of sort of meditation when it comes to my gender identity. For 21 years, every waking hour of my life, I thought about it. I thought about the fact that I wanted to be a girl, I was a girl, but I was presenting as a boy, I was born a boy, and everyone perceived me as a boy. For the first time in my life, I'm not constantly thinking about my gender. There will be challenges, but I have that family behind me and that group of friends behind me, so I know I will have people to help me through the challenges, but also share in the joy. I wouldn't have been able to do this without the love and support of my friends and my family. And the idea that that's a privilege is not right. No one should fear that they're going to lose any family or any friends because they simply want to live true to themselves. Sarah McBride is a student at American University, which holds the license to WAMU 88.5. You can find Sarah's op-ed, The Real Me, on our website, metroconnection.org. And now on to a different sort of transition, one that's taking place in the D.C. arts community. After 47 years, nearly half a century, Norman Scribner is stepping down as the artistic director of the Choral Arts Society of Washington, the symphonic chorus he founded in 1965. But before he takes his final bow, Scribner and his friends are planning a grand finale next week in the forum of a concert. The concert at the National Cathedral will capture key moments from Scribner's storied career and will feature fellow conductors who have worked with him for decades. Jessica Gould attended a rehearsal to talk with the maestro and his singers about what the Choral Arts Society has meant to them. The birth of the Choral Arts Society was as the result of church choir performances that I was involved in from 1962 on. Of course, 1968 was a watershed year, and and we decided we wanted to put music in service of the memory of Martin Luther King and his ideals and his message for us all, and that's continued to this day, and it's one of our proudest things. Being the son of a Methodist minister, I was steeped in the Bible readings, and of course, most of choral music is on religious texts, most of the really greatest music, and I remember standing behind the organist, marveling at his feet flying and his hands flying and the choir singing. I got pulled in very, very quickly to a solid commitment that I wanted my whole life to be music. Oh, Norman is just, Norman is Norman. Norman is just a truly magnificent individual who had an extraordinary vision. Norman is all about the music, but through love. He loves the music. He loves us singers. I think one thing that really stands out is our trip to Moscow with Slava Rostropovich and the National Symphony Orchestra. It was just after the Soviet Union collapsed, and we did a concert on Tchaikovsky's birthday. 100,000 people standing in Red Square for this concert. We've had children of chorus members that have joined the chorus. I met both of my husbands in the chorus. 
There are people in the choir who have said to me, multiple people, that they consider this their church. This is their once-a-week sanctuary where they come and they're around friends, but they're also doing something really meaningful. Our next artistic director is a man named Scott Tucker. I'll miss everything about Norman, and I'll welcome everything about Scott. So I felt like I got, hopefully, a lot of my tears out, and this can just be more of a celebration. It's been a glorious ride. What's next for me is to spend more time with my beautiful wife, Shirley, and our four children and our eight wonderful grandchildren, and also get back to my compositional activities. We're all a community of music lovers here in service to the same goal and have been for decades, and hopefully it will go on for decades. That was Norman Scribner, along with Choral Arts Society members Larry Culp, Ann Kaiser, and Elizabeth Romig, as well as fellow conductor Bob Schaefer, all talking with WAMU's Jessica Gould. To hear more from the Choral Arts Society of Washington, or to get details about Scribner's farewell concert on June 13th, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Next, the wild and wicked tales of days gone by on Capitol Hill. A lot of these scandals, they were certainly a problem for a lot of people involved back when they happened. But now we look back and, and we can sort of, we can laugh about it. Plus, big changes in the world of D.C.'s public housing. Before, they were just severely distressed public housing. They are healthier. They're very creative, and in many ways, I peg the urban renaissance of the past just over a decade to the fact that a lot of these communities now exist. That and other wild cards coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we continue our wild cards theme, we're going to kick off this segment of the show with some seriously bad behavior. And the man who's going to tell us all about it. Hello. Yeah. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. Welcome to my hood. Is this guy? My name's Robert Pohl. Pohl is a local historian and tour guide. I do walking tours here of Capitol Hill as Walking Shtick. So you look me up on walkingshtick.com. And the reason he knows so much about bad behavior is he's just written an entire book on the subject. It has a very playful name, Wicked Capitol Hill, An Unruly History of Behaving Badly. Yes, indeed. Among Walking Shtick's offerings is something called the Scandal Tour. So when I met up with Robert Pohl in Capitol Hill, he walked me by some sites connected with some pretty sizzling scandals. And we're talking scandals from the 18th and 19th centuries. All right, so where are we walking now? We're just walking out of Folger Park across the street to Providence Park. For me, it's the final chapter of the William Tolby saga. A saga which we'll hear about in just a moment, but Paul also showed me sites associated with some 20th century misdeeds. So we're walking towards the house that was lived in by John and Rita Jeanrette right now. Um, it's just off the park. And uh, we'll hear all about the Jeanrette scandal in just a moment, too, but... Let's start with one of Robert Pohl's favorites, 
Kentucky Congressman William Preston Talby, who Paul says was born to be a politician. He was tall, he was handsome, he was originally a Methodist minister and had the appropriate verbal chops in that regard. But something else Talby had when he was in office in the 1880s was a mistress. He met a young woman named Laura Dodge, who actually lived on the hill as well, a third and A northeast, basically. Talby got her a job at the patent office as a clerk. The top floor was used to house the old patent models, so lots of little corners to hide in up there, and that's where Talby and Dodge hid until they were discovered one day. And the next day, an article ran in the Louisville Times. Which basically said, you know, a Kentucky representative has been caught with this young woman. And actually the full headline was Kentucky's silver-tongued tall bee caught in flagranti or thereabouts with brown-haired Miss Dodge, also of Kentucky. Congressman and clerk lunching on forbidden fruit and hidden waters. But despite the alluring, if long-winded, headline, no newspapers in D.C. reported the story. Talby did end up resigning from Congress, but Paul says he didn't do it in disgrace. So the affair with Dodge did not ruin his career? No. No, not at all. He stayed here in D.C. and he started earning a lot of money. He was, a, he was also a lawyer. I forgot to mention that. So another useful thing to be here. Now, mind you, this is not the end of our titillating tale. See, Talby kept crossing paths with the Kentucky journalist who wrote the aforementioned article, Charles Kincaid. Problem was that Talby took every opportunity that they met to tweak Kincaid, who was about a foot shorter than Talby and sort of 100 pounds soaking wet. So obviously, you know, in each one of these encounters, Kincaid would come out the worst. Paul says at one point, Talby warned Kincaid to be armed next time they met. And lo and behold, a few hours later, as Talby was emerging from the House chamber, who should emerge but a gun-wielding Kincaid? And Kincaid shoots him in the face. The bullet goes in here, lodges back here. Wait, you're pointing to where? Uh, I'm pointing just below my eye, ah. and it lodged in the back of his skull. Talby was rushed to Providence Hospital, now Providence Park, where he died 11 days later. And as for Charles Kincaid? Kincaid was arrested for the murder, and he was tried, and he managed to get away with it under a temporary insanity. And while the newspapers had pretty much ignored Talby's earlier misdeeds, they were all over his murder for quite a while. But of course, William Talby was old news by the time we reach another of Robert Pohl's favorite scandals, that of John and Rita Genret, the couple whose former house is just off the park. So which one is it exactly? So it's this blue one right here, 160 North Carolina, southeast. So it's the mid-1970s, and John Genret, a freshman Democratic representative from South Carolina, falls in love with Rita Carpenter, the director of opposition research for the Republican National Committee. They get married and quickly become the toast of Capitol Hill, until John was busted as part of a scandal known as Abscam. FBI agents went to various representatives and senators, I believe, too, and offered them bribes. They said they were an Arab sheikh and they wanted to give them money to do whatever. Jenrette was convicted, he quit the house, and he separated from his wife. But that's not where our scandal begins. Fast forward to 1980, when Rita Jenrette wrote a juicy tell-all about her and her husband's racy congressional life for Playboy. And in case you're wondering, she did pose too, semi-nude. And that's when it finally took off as a scandal, you know? It's like, up till then, I was like, yeah, whatever. Representative misbehaving, yeah, whatever, you know? But now, a congressional wife not only posing for Playboy, but writing salacious tales. 
that got everybody going. Because Rita Jenrette wrote about stuff like rampant drug use in Congress, raucous hot tub parties she and her husband attended. And the most famous part of the story was, in fact, where she wrote about how at the Capitol, it was a late night session, and he got bored, and he called her up and she came over, and they had unauthorized nookie on the uh, Capitol steps. In fact, perhaps you've heard of the comedy troupe, The Capitol Steps? Well... They're named for that particular incident. Um, I should note here that even though Robert Pohl's book is chock full of stories like these, he refers to it as Wicked Capitol Hill, Volume 1. Well, it ends, like, what, in the mid-80s, 1980s? Yes. Uh, it seems like a, a good scandal. In order to become a good story, you need a certain distance to it. There's another quote that I use at the very end, um, Carol Burnett, something like, uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I say it's more like scandal plus time equals entertainment. And as Paul writes in the books afterward, in time, today's scandals will be added to the canon of Capitol Hill stories as well. In the meantime, rest assured that as long as there are people living and working on Capitol Hill, there will be no shortage of new scandals either. Robert Pohl is the author of Wicked Capitol Hill, An Unruly History of Behaving Badly, published by History Press. For more on the book, which also includes the story of an infamous madam whose grave counts among the most elaborate in Congressional Cemetery, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Why can't you behave? Oh, why can't you behave? Okay, we'll head south of Capitol Hill now, down to the neighborhood between Nationals Park and the Navy Yard. The area used to be home to the Arthur Caper Carrollsburg Public Housing Project, a series of low-rise apartment buildings that were demolished in the mid-2000s. Today, the area is in the midst of a major redevelopment that will bring all sorts of new housing, shopping, and office space to the neighborhood. Jonna McCone took a look at how the demolition of public housing projects such as this one is changing the landscape of D.C. and the lives of the people who once lived in these communities. So, as you can see here in this closet, we have the washer and dryer. It doesn't take that long after you meet 32-year-old Shakita Campbell to realize she's a big fan of her home. I have been enjoying it since the day I moved in. I love my apartment. I love the fact that it's spacious. Campbell says most people would never know her apartment is subsidized public housing run by the D.C. Housing Authority. If you don't tell a person, they will not know. It's wonderful to not be looked at, you know, in a in a different light. Campbell lives in a development of multiple-story row houses called Capital Quarters, a few blocks from the Anacostia River and the Waterfront Metro Stop. The construction here replaces the Arthur Caper Carrollsburg project, which once contained more than 700 subsidized apartments. The entire area now branded Capital Riverfront, has new offices, parks, hotels, and lofts. Deborah Frazier lives in one of those loft developments in a former industrial building. And I am one of the residents who was displaced from the property known as Arthur Caper Carrollsburg. Frazier lived in Arthur Caper Carrollsburg, known as Capers, among some residents, for eight years. She says it was her home. 
I came to appreciate that there were people who had been in that community 15, 20, 25 years. A lot of people had lived in their townhouses and lived in their apartments and been at that corner store. It was home for people and indeed had that feeling. People planted flowers and some people mowed their lawns and a lot of folks were house proud. It was indeed a community. She says she always felt safe, but also acknowledges that Capers had its problems, mostly with drug trafficking. Virginia tags would come into our community beginning at 6 a.m. in the morning until about 8. That was the heroin crew. And in the afternoon, there was the, the crack cocaine crew in the evening, that kind of thing. Arthur Caper Carrollsburg instead became the most ambitious public housing redevelopment in the district, according to the D.C. Housing Authority. It's part of HOPE 6, which stands for Housing Opportunities for People Everywhere, a national initiative that began in the mid-90s to address severely distressed public housing. The goal was to transform public housing, says Adrian Todman, executive director of the D.C. Housing Authority. That meant $1.5 billion in investment in the city's housing stock. Housing authorities began to work with the private sector in a way that had never occurred before. The idea of mixed finance was taking HUD's funds and blending them with private funds, equity, debt, tax credits, and finding the way to actually create a package of financing to create housing that was for very low-income families all the way to market rate. In D.C., there are seven Hope Six sites, mostly east of the Anacostia River. The new communities include different rental and buying options, from market rate homes for sale to deeply subsidized rental units. What that has done now some 19, 20 years later is we have these vibrant communities throughout the country that are these mixed income communities where before they were just severely distressed public housing. They are healthier. They're very creative, and in many ways, I peg the urban renaissance of the past just over a decade to the fact that a lot of these communities now exist. But Deborah Frazier says these ambitious goals have meant uncertainty for residents. When we were notified of the Hope Six, we were told it would take three or four years. That was 1999, and here we are in 2012, and they're just on phase two. Up to now, of our 400 Original residents, about 120, have returned to the property right now. Frazier was given a voucher to help pay for temporary housing. Shakita Campbell, who lives in that bright new apartment we heard about earlier, was scared of where she might be placed during the changes. She ended up living with relatives for three years until her new apartment was ready. I don't think some people believed that they would really have the opportunity to come back. Or they may not have thought that they would be able to afford to come back. Campbell followed up on the paperwork to ensure her return, but many others did not. So Deborah Frazier has spent years advocating for the Housing Authority to keep track of residents displaced by the redevelopment and help them return if they want to do so. Once you start a Hope 6 development process and you, you make an opportunity for those residents to return, they will not because people develop a sense of community and placement where they are. There is a terrible sense of loss for what that community was. We raised our children there. You, you know, you ate, drank, you broke up with boyfriends, you had friends, you had parties, and that it is totally gone. There's no remnants of who we were and what we were as a community. It feels like mental, emotional genocide. As for Campbell, she says she's embracing the changes going on around her, even if the new community is different from the old one. 
I'm happy about the fact that I'm connected to houses that are like $600,000 and it makes you feel good about yourself that you're able to raise your child up in a very good neighborhood. Deborah Frazier likes a new place too. Today she lives just a few blocks away. It's a very lovely community. It matches any of the upscale places in Georgetown and American University. It looks better than the previous Hope Sixes. Now the project just needs to be completed. Capital Quarters market rate townhomes are sold out, but the subsidized apartments are still under construction, with no precise end date. Frazier is hoping that once they're done, former Arthur Keeper Carrollsburg residents will come back to their old neighborhood and call this place their home once again. I'm Jonna McCone. You can see photos of the former Arthur Caper Carrollsburg housing project and the new buildings going up in its place on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit D.C.'s DuPont Circle and Lynn Haven, Virginia. Hi, I'm Iris Malotsky, and I live in DuPont Circle area, and we've lived here for 28 years. It's where Massachusetts, P Street, 18th Street come together, and there's a beautiful circle with a lovely DuPont Circle fountain. A lot of people moved into this area because they appreciated the buildings and they appreciated the history that went with DuPont Circle. We've had to fight to keep a lot of our mansions from being demolished, and in fact, a number of them sadly have been. But now people understand the value of keeping the older buildings, and Washington itself is so fortunate because so much of our housing stock is brick rather than wood, so we have not lost a lot of it, and so we have the ability to see what Washington was like. One of the reasons those of us who live in DuPont Circle are so enthusiastic is because it is such a mixture of residential, commercial, green space, young, old, black, gay, Hispanic. When you're out there on a sunny Sunday morning and you're in the market or you're just walking around, you just, you just smile because it's a good place to be. My name is Rosa Bird. I live in the Lynn Haven section of Alexandria, Virginia, and I am 68 years old. We're on the northern tip of the city of Alexandria. There's approximately 350 homes on five different streets. When we moved here in 68, this was a predominantly white neighborhood with very few African Americans. Over the years, it became a predominantly African American neighborhood with lots of children. Now it is changing again. It's getting to be white people, young, career-bound professionals with not a lot of children, but a lot of dogs. 
In the 80s, sad to say, drug trafficking tried to rear its ugly head in our neighborhood. We were the eyes and ears for the city government. One particular tactic I remember we used, if they would gather in our local park, we would call each other and say it's time to clean the park. So you'd see women coming down the hill with brooms and shovels. So we cleaned our park. And when they were there, they got uncomfortable and they left. It's wonderful living here. We have a school that's a math technology school, and all the children that live in this neighborhood can walk to school. And I'm proud to say that my children went here and all three of my grandchildren went to school at Cora Kelly Math Science Technology School. It's a big city with country ways because you can pick up the phone and call any of the city officials that you need. You can pick up the phone and call your neighbor and get any assistance that you need. I don't think you stay strangers here long. We heard from Iris Malatsky in DuPont Circle and Rosa Bird in Lynn Haven. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jessica Gould, Martin DeCaro, Sabri Benashore, John McCone, and Lauren Landau. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. John McCone and Lauren Landau produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on an individual story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to any of our recent shows, you can do that too. You also can find our podcast on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we are going to fully caffeinate and be up all night in nocturnal Washington. We'll spend time on the late shift in the cardiac intensive care unit at Children's National Medical Center. We'll go inside the State Department's Ops Center, which tracks global happenings all night long. And we'll premiere our new series, DC Dives, where we dive into the life and culture of neighborhood watering holes around the district. I had a young lady come in the other night and ask for a hot toddy, and I almost had to stop myself from laughing. And she's like, Oh, what? It's okay if you don't have honey. I said, sweetheart, I don't have honey. I don't have lemons. I don't have sugar. I don't have tea bags. And I don't have hot water. So I can give you the shot of whiskey, and that's about it. I'm Rebecca Shearer. Thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.